anybody can go to Italy, but not anybody can really understand the Italian culture. Today, we're going to look at Italy from a cuisine point of view and using cuisine as an entree into that rich culture. And I'm joined by a connoisseur of Italian cuisine and a man who's passionate about really connecting with Italian culture through its cuisine, and he's Fred Plotkin. Fred writes The Definitive Guide to Italian Cuisine. It's the new fifth edition, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Fred, thanks for joining us. Buongiorno, Riccardo. Come va? Molto bene, te? Mm, very good, thank you. <laughs> and that's, where my, <laughs> that's where my Italian runs out. But I do know who Garibaldi is, and you call yourself a Garibaldi with a fork, and you think we should all be Garibaldis with a fork. What do you mean by that? Well, Garibaldi is the man who united the nation of Italy, and he did that by traveling to every little town and hamlet. The way we always say George Washington slept here, Garibaldi slept almost everywhere in Italy, and I've eaten almost everywhere in Italy. So he put his head down on pillows, and I put my fork into a bowl in every little hamlet you can think of. So you're talking about just have an adventurous spirit and connect with this concept of campanilismo. Campanilismo. Campanile means the bell tower. And in Italy, every little town has a church with a bell tower. And you are connected to that town if you live within earshot and with view of the bell tower. So that if I live in Parma and I see and hear my bell tower, that is my identity. The food of Parma, the dialect of Parma, the music of Parma would be what I connect to. And I, I mentioned Parma because I was there in October of 2009 and there was a lightning storm that hit the bell tower and destroyed the top of it. And people took that as a signal that they better get right with Parma. And they began rebuilding the very next day. Bell towers have that much significance to Italians. But what it means is, I am of the place where the bell tower rings. I've heard uh, Italy called the land of a thousand bell towers with that same idea, that people relate, you know, to their town more than even to their country. In fact, when Italy was united, what, back in 1870, the famous yes. uh, politicians that did it said, they, they declared, now, well, we've created Italy, now we need to create Italians. And that's a struggle <laughs> to this day, isn't it? It's true. Well, that's why cookbooks come out and and other things come out that relate to the Italian nation. But really, the only time Italians think of themselves as a nation is when the soccer team plays in the World Cup. And then it really is a united nation. I've been in Belgium, and all of a sudden in Brussels, the Italians won the World Cup, and the whole city seems to be Italian. Every Italian is out on the streets <laughs> just going crazy. Well, there are no Belgians anyway, so... <laughs> That's right. Everybody's combining into that country. But when when we think of the sort of the regional pride and even the village pride, you know, I, I love the five villages of the Italian Riviera, the, the Cinque Terre, and people in each of those villages, even in this modern day and age, they have their own dialect and they're proud of it. And they raise their kids, you know, saying it's pronounced this way, not like in the next town. Uh, this this hometown pride, they've got the best salami here or the best pasta there. It really is alive and well today in Italy, I think, more than other countries. I, I can't uh, get over how my friends in Siena still have a medieval grudge against Florence. Not only that, but in Siena, when they have the polio twice a year in July and in August, the people in the different districts and neighborhoods of Siena don't like one another. <laughs> and when one, like the owl or the fox or whatever the different neighborhoods are called, when one of them wins, people practically have breakdowns with joy because they have won 
and not the people two blocks away. It is wild. And as a traveler, you can be oblivious to that or you can be connected to that. But it, it really, uh, the onus is on you to, to get clued in to what's going on around you. And that's why it's good to have a, you know, a healthy curiosity and a determination to be prepared to understand this. And that's why I'm pretty excited about Fred's book. Fred's book is out in a new fifth edition, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. And uh, I just want to read uh, our little paragraph here and, and get your take on it. This book is a gathering of much of what makes Italy special. My intention was not merely to write a restaurant guide. Here is a book about the sensuality of Italy expressed through its food, wine, and quality of life. More to the point, this is about living Italy, as opposed to all the guidebooks that lead you to the inanimate tourist attractions and stores selling gloves and souvenirs. I want to take you to the Italy that you can see, taste, smell, touch, and hear. Music, flavors, fragrances, beautiful scenery, art, food, and people are all sources of pleasure known in Italy as piacere. While the rest of the world veers to standardization, sterilization, and mass marketing, Italy can still offer much that makes you feel alive, human, and sensual. Much of what is most unique about Italy is the pursuit of pleasure and the skill of Italians to do just this. That's beautiful, Fred. Thank you, and it's heartfelt. You must have had that experience. And to understand that, again, you combine the culture with the way you would actually experience it. And that takes a little bit of uh, skills, I would say. One angle on that, which I like about that you discuss in your book, is Abinamento. Abinamento means pairing, and very strictly it's used in food and wine, but it can go with anything. It's how things go together. Italians, when they look at the world, whether it's in music and food or anything, look at the contrasts, the juxtapositions. Think of one of my favorite Italian words, chiaroscuro, which is referred to in art. Chiaroscuro means light and dark. But it's yin and yang. It's a relationship of two different phenomena. It's understanding that when you see the moon and the bright side, there's the dark side of the moon too. That is in the Italian character. The Italians know that a good day may be with us now. A bad day might come later. So enjoy this good day because you never know. All of that is why Italians devote themselves to pleasure. It's not hedonism. It's a recognition that good things have been put here for us to enjoy and to make more beautiful and to venerate. You know, that relates to one of my themes or trends as a guidebook writer of steering people to wine bars. And that's where you can get inexpensive small food with expensive glasses of great wine. And I really feel the passion for the proprietor there to match, to pair the food with the wine. What is your um, recommendation on those little eateries? Well, they're called enoteca, mm -hmm. as an enophile for wine. And the person who owns this is called the oste, O-S-T-E, meaning host. And he or she is someone who cultivates relationship with local wine producers, local cheesemakers, and understands how these things go together. As I said, I was in Parma recently, and I was in a place called Bar Mauro. To look at it, it looks like nothing. But then you understand that Mauro, who only has a few pieces of pork and a couple of pieces of cheese in his container, knows that these are the very best, so he doesn't have to offer 100 types. By having five, but knowing that they're all outstanding, and then selecting the wine that he thinks you might like with them, he is being the hoste, the hoste, someone who is looking at the person in front of him and saying, how can I give pleasure to this person 
with what I know to be good. Now, these guys are experts, and they're passionate, and I believe they care about their customers, even if they're just a clueless tourist. What is the name of the establishment again, of Vino? This one is Bar Mauro, but it's an Enoteca, Enoteca. E-N-O-T-E-C-A, Enoteca. Enoteca. And they're all over Italy. I feel it's a, a great economic way to experience top, top class matching of great ingredients and great wine. It's the way Italians eat now. Right. I'm talking with Fred Plotkin, and Fred's new fifth edition of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler is out. And Fred, I love this concept of the Sagra, the the festival celebrating the arrival of seasonal foods. And I think as much as anywhere when you're in Italy, you really got to be clued into what is seasonal. There's something in Italy called the primizia, P-R-I-M-I-Z-I-A. This is the first time you eat a food or ingredient in a year. So when the first cherry or apricot arrives, Italians stop and say a little prayer of thanks for the return of the cherry or the apricot, the primizia. Typically, these are full of flavor. They're not as complex as the apricots and cherries that come later, but they're the harbinger of good things to come. They say to you that for this season, however long it might be, a week, two months, you are to enjoy and find every way of exploring the uses of these foods. In Friuli, Venezia, Giulia, they have white asparagus for two months. In Liguria and in Lazio, they have magnificent artichokes for about six weeks. And the Italians know to really dig in for that period because when it's gone, it's gone. So they're sort of inherently going with the season, not struggling with it. They say this is what nature is giving us. And they try not to subvert nature by having things kept in cold storage for a long time so that you could say, yes, I could have an apricot in November, but it won't taste like anything. They know that it's best appreciated when it looks and tastes at its best. It may not be pretty to look at. It may be a little mottled, but it will taste like heaven, and that's the primary goal. Now, that's all high ideals when it comes to food, but what is the advent of the modern supermarket? How has that affected local eating habits? You're beginning to see, with Italy being part of the European Union, Euro standardization. And frankly, the European standards are lower than the Italian standards. Hmm. So you will see supermarkets that will have wrapped up pears and, and, and apples especially. And I don't even go there. I don't buy those. I would rather have an apple that was recently picked that I can smell. That's the key thing. My way into food is with my nose. And if I can smell that the apple still taste of the orchard, then that's the apple I want. Okay. This applies to all foods. Now, I feel all over Europe a push and a pull and a tug by globalization, just the undeniable forces of globalization. People say it's a big train, get on it or get run over. How has that need to compete internationally challenged the local wine industry in Italy? I think that Italy is the country that has adapted least well to globalization, and in the long run, that will be a good thing, because when everything is standardized, poor little Italy will be left out in that everything will still be typical and local, and people will return to Italy and say, wow, those hazelnuts from Piemonte don't taste like anything I've ever tasted, and those cherries from Vignola and those pumpkins that come from Mantova taste like nothing else. That's because they've not been standardized. This also applies to high fashion. Once the rest of the world all dresses by the same mass producer of jeans and T-shirts, they'll look to Italians and say, what can you show us that we don't know? 
So I believe in supporting Italy as a nation that is the guardian of classical good taste. So Italian chaos and inability to get its act together with the rest of the world is almost a blessing in disguise then? It should be. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Plotkin, and Fred's uh, definitive guide for Italian food culture is out. It's Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking Italian food, and that means Italian culture, if you know what's good for you. And our guest is Fred Plotkin. The fifth edition of Fred's book, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, is just out, and we've got Monique on the line from Haverhill, Massachusetts. Monique, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. Um, My question is about truffles. I'm wondering um, if you can tell us when they're in season, which areas are most known for them. And I have not yet tasted one, and I'm curious to know um, what the fuss is all about and what's so wonderful about them. Well, people either love truffles or hate them. The first thing to understand about truffles is, and I would send you first to Piemonte, that when it's a good year for wine, it's a bad year for truffles. Truffles come when there's a lot of rain, so that's not good for wine. But go in a year where it might be a bit rainy and go in October or early November and have them simply prepared tallarine, which are egg noodles, and shave some truffle on top. There are white truffles and there are black truffles. The white truffles are much more prized and expensive. I would start you on black truffles so it doesn't break the bank. And if you like that, then advance to white truffles. It's perfume. And I can tell you that dogs are typically the ones who are sent out to find truffles. Truffles smell, and forgive me for being clinical, very much like the gonadal zone on the human being. And dogs often stick their noses in that place because they're drawn to that particular fragrance. So if that's a smell that pleases, then truffles might as well. Now, Fred, I, I get a feeling that in tourist areas, anytime they put the word truffles or tartufo on the menu, tourists are going to go, yeah, and they're going to order it. And a lot of it's just um, sort of a poor excuse for truffle taste in some kind of truffle oil. What are your uh, warnings in that regard? It's an abomination. Do not get truffle oil ever. Truffle paste is an adequate substitute, but better just to have it once, to have it in a zone where truffles are, are naturally occurring and just freshly shaved on either pasta or scrambled eggs, something very simple. If you're not in Piemonte, Umbria is another good area for truffles, but start with Piemonte. So you want a simple dish in season with the truffle actually grated onto your pasta or whatever? Yes. Okay. Monique, any other thoughts on truffles? Are you going to try one? I'd love to. I'm wondering if it's possible to get them in the United States. I know I've heard of people having them, but, you know, when you get them over here, they're not they're not native to the United States, right? And for what you're paying for it here, you could buy an air ticket to Milan. <laughs> so you know the answer there, Monique. Yes. Okay, thanks for your call. Great, thank you. And Diane's on the phone in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Diane, thanks for your call. Thank you. Fred, I uh, am a chef myself, and uh, studied in France when I was in cooking school, but uh, I'm very interested in the cooking schools of Italy. I've heard about Colte Buono, where Mrs. de' Medici uh, really teaches, and I was wondering if you knew of any schools, particularly in the Piedmont area, because that's the food I love the most. Well, I do, actually. Just in full disclosure, uh, Lorenzo de' Medici and I once wrote a cookbook together, and therefore I, I happily would support her and recommend her. For Piemonte, there are a few. One of them is actually related to the slow food movement, and it's in the city of Bra. 
Um, another thing I would have you do is contact what's called GRI, Gruppo Ristoratori Italiani. And they're actually based in New York. And they have a cooking school in Piemonte that's a very fine school for professional chefs. So if indeed you are a professional chef and not an amateur, then I would do that. There's also something based in Chicago called the International Kitchen. And they work with cooking schools throughout Italy. And I would recommend them, theinternationalkitchen.com, as a means of finding a cooking school in the region you want to go to. Thanks so much. Thank you. Diane, before you go, you're um, a chef and, and you appreciate good food and apparently you love Italian food. Can you get a good Italian eating experience in the United States or has your experience in Italy kind of spoiled it that way? There are some places in the United States, particularly in California, that uh, seem to sort of replicate the Italian experience around San Francisco uh, with very fresh seafood and things of that kind. But I would say that, generally speaking, in the United States, the food does not compare to Italy. And precisely because of what Mr. Plotkin was saying, the ingredients in Italy are everything. It really boils down to that Italian forte of let the flavor of an ingredient shine. The real difference between European food and American food is the quality of ingredients. But you get more. You get bigger portions here. You do, but not as good. (laughs) I think a lot of people, when they go to Italy, they get a small portion. They go, what's going on? And at home, I would have got double this. That's right. But I guess guess you've got to understand that in Italy, it's a a multi-course affair, and you're going to take your time, and uh, you really need to um, embrace that sort of style of eating. Absolutely. Diane, thanks for your call. You're welcome. I'm talking with Fred Plotkin, who's written Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Fred, when getting back to that whole idea of uh, American-Italian food, when we think Italian food, we're kind of naive, and it's basically rustic Neapolitan, isn't it? It's rustic Neapolitan. It's really Italian-American food in that when Italian migrants came to various parts of the United States, they were poor. So when they found the bounty in the United States, and I I do want to add, we have wonderful ingredients in America too, but we don't always know how to use them in their best way. But we are a nation blessed with beautiful raw materials, especially vegetables now. And the migrants began to build up recipes, putting in tons of fish and seafood, tons of meat, rivers of cheese, and made it a very heavy cuisine. In Italy, lasagna is not heavy. In Italy, chupin means little soup, and it just has a few little bits of fish in it. In San Francisco, it became chopino and is a bigger seafood stew than bouillabaisse. It Mm. it doesn't represent Italian taste at all. It's delicious, Mm -hmm. but it's not Italian. You know, you hit it on the nail there, though. When I think of Italian food here, generally it's a little heavier, and when I think of the same equivalent in Italy, it would be lighter, wouldn't it? Yes. I recently was in the market in the town of Macerata, which I highly recommend to anyone going to Italy as one of those unspoiled places that has everything we love about Italy. And they have a lasagna just in that town called Vinci's Grassi. And Vinci's Grassi has about 40 layers of very thin pasta. And it's an exquisite lasagna, but not heavy at all. It's Mm -hmm. very delicate. Now, that's in the Marque region. And that is one of those regions that people don't really know very well. That would be from Rome, sort of north, but on the Adriatic side? It's northeast. Okay. You could take the Via Salaria. The Via Salaria is the road that the ancient Romans built from Ancona, where there was a lot of salt, 
to Rome to transport salt, so Via Salati, a road of salt. Those of us who love Italian food have to be thankful for Columbus, I would imagine. Well, poor Christopher Columbus is much maligned. Um, He worked for the Spanish crown for Ferdinand and Isabella, and he was sent over. He was actually not even sent to the Americas. He was sent to India, and he took a wrong turn and wound up in what we now call the Americas, and he made four voyages, and I believe that no one in the history of food had more impact on how we eat and what we eat than did Christopher Columbus. He brought livestock to the New World. He brought turkey. He brought tomatoes. He brought potatoes. He brought chocolate and vanilla and other things from the Americas to the Old World. He brought peppers and corn. So think, for example, of Italian food without tomatoes. Think of polenta without corn. Polenta before that was made of millet. Think of peppers that did not exist in Italy. Many beans, zucchini, pumpkin were not there. So all of these traditional Italian dishes are actually made with American ingredients. Wow. And that brings to mind there's a little market stall in Assisi where you look up and you see the fresco on the ceiling and it celebrates a turkey. And uh, it was 500 years old and apparently it was a big deal in Assisi when they got their first uh, turkey in the market. Well, because it was a bird that provided more meat than did a chicken. Because historically in Italy, Italians don't kill chickens except on very special occasions. There's an expression in Piemonte which says, quando si uccide una gallina, o è morta la gallina o sta morendo un uomo, which means more or less, if you're killing a chicken, either the chicken is sick or a man is dying. Because the chicken is valuable in providing eggs. Ah. And if you kill it, She does not give any more eggs, obviously, so you're eating the meat. That's a sacrifice. Oh, my goodness. So the turkey represented meat. Fred, I like when you say be a culinary geographer. Explain specifically what you mean by that. That actually, I think I coined that term. And I said that Italians are culinary geographers, meaning that they understand that a combination of soil and climate and weather and seasonality means that the cantaloupe that comes from Mantova in Lombardy is just better than cantaloupe from elsewhere, and they agree on that and are willing to pay more for cantaloupe from there. They know that tuna or onions that come from Tropea in Calabria are sensational, and they'll pay more for it. Hazelnuts from Alba, basil from a little town called Pra in Liguria makes the best pesto, and on and on. There's a huge list of these foods that Italians agree are best from one town at one time of the year. And that's a culinary geographer. And for the beginner, if you just simply go to the market and see what looks best, that's what you could order at the restaurant that night and you're a culinary geographer? Exactly so. So if you're in Bologna, which is my favorite eating city in in the world, and you happen to notice that there are a lot of beautiful fish from the Adriatic, let's say sole, which have a very brief season, You would say, all right, sole, if I want fish, is what I'm eating at a restaurant tonight because there's a lot of sole in the market. Similarly, if you see artichokes, it means that this is high season for artichokes. So get sole with a side of artichokes. So be flexible and open-minded. Go with the flow. And something else to tie into that would be, I think, the folly of looking for something in your mind that's authentic because in so many cases, food is evolving and it kind of undercuts the whole notion of authentic, doesn't it? You have no idea how many Italian-Americans I meet who are disappointed with food in Italy because they say, 
it's not like my grandmother's. There is no way to say that something is authentic. Something is of a tradition, is what I say. Hmm. And in even the same town, for example, Body, where many grandmothers come from, they might make a pasta in a certain way and have a meatball with it. Traditionally in Body, they add lemon zest to the meatballs, and the meatballs are tiny. But sometimes they might add basil or another herb. It doesn't mean that one is authentic and the other is not. It means that there are two ways of doing it, even from one grandmother to the next. So that means for the traveler in Italy trying to enjoy the culture, get away from your preconceived notions and what you thought you were going to order, but that puts you at the mercy of the waiter, Fred. And I find a lot of times I want to just tell the waiter, I'll trust you, feed me whatever you want to feed me. But does that make it possible that we just get all the stuff that's on their push list, or do you trust waiters when you just put yourself at their mercy? I tend to size up the waiter and decide if he is really proud of a certain food and knows it's good or feels this is something that we want to move and get rid of. Don't forget, when I go to Italy, I speak Italian. Mm -hmm. I order an Italian. I suspect that I'm treated with a little more sense of that I know what I'm doing than would be a visitor finding his or way through a menu in a language they don't know. But I tend not to rely on waiters, would be my advice, but to even go into the kitchen and say, what do you have? What is good? What do you suggest? The chefs know what's good. The chef is too proud to ever push something on you that's not good because it's his reputation or her reputation on the line, and that is something that you can never get back. So I rely on the chefs. A tourist in a, in a non-touristy restaurant, first of all, for sure, go to a non-touristy restaurant, ideally in a non-touristy town. But does the tourist then, are they, is it permissible to actually go back and talk, check out the chef? Well, I always have to wash my hands in the bathroom, and they tend to be oh, nearby. Yeah. There you go. So when I'm going to wash my hands, I'll stop by and I'll say, what's good? <laughs> Cosa c'è di buono? Good line to know. Yeah. Fred, you talk in the book about the culinary blackout. What do you mean by that? I was born in 1956, and I moved to Italy in the early 70s. And that was a period right after 1968 of revolution and throwing away anything relating to older generations. So at that time, when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, I wanted to know everything I could about food and wine, not for a profession, but just to learn. And my classmates would take me to their homes in Puglia or Valladosta or everywhere in between, and their mothers would teach me things that my fellow students of that age wanted nothing to do with. So I found that 20 years on, when I was in my early 40s, I knew more about Italian food and wine culture than did most people my age because there was that culinary blackout. Only now, in their 50s, are they starting to come back to food as identity, as culture, as something that they can hang on to in a world that's unpredictable. And that's why I'm in the unusual position of teaching Italians their food culture because they missed out on it. Is the slow food movement just a, a few odd vegetarians who have uh, ridiculously careful ideals, or is it a real force in Italian cuisine? Well, just so you know, I'm one of the 65 original founders of slow food in the United States. So I became a proponent of it early on. Well, I once heard a woman say there's nothing natural about natural childbirth, and I would make a corollary. There's nothing convenient about convenience foods. Mm -hmm. They're terrible for the environment. They don't taste good, 
And just because you throw something in a microwave doesn't make it convenient. Slow food was a rejection of fast food. It was saying that with the same amount of use of the soil, of ingredients, food preparation time and expense, we can produce pasta, beautiful soups, baked vegetables, things that are really good for us and not have to have a fast food product that is very bad for you, loaded with fat, sugar, salt, that's devastating for the earth. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring Italian culture through its food. And Fred writes the the definitive guide to eating your way through Italy with knowledge and understanding, and it's out in its fifth edition, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Fred, I like your notion of the pleasure activist. Can we wrap things up with just uh, explaining to us what do you mean by us travelers becoming pleasure activists? Well, I believe that one of the great gifts that we as humans have received is our five senses of sight, smell, taste, hearing, and touch. But I would argue that most people don't use 10 or 15% of what we've been given for our senses in that we, we see but we don't really perceive. We get a smell near us but we don't think about it. We taste but we don't savor. We hear but we don't listen. And we touch but we don't really feel. And if we would just permit ourselves to be more human, to use our senses the way we were intended to use them, we would experience so much more. People always say, how do you remember what something tasted like or smelled like? Well, I let my senses really be on full all the time, and I don't analyze. I experience first, and I let the analysis come later. And I would also argue that if you put your five senses to good work all the time, you develop a sixth sense, and that's instinct. And that, to me, is the product of our other five. So I am indeed someone who believes in pleasure activism, not hedonism, but our use of our senses for pleasure and knowledge. Words for a traveler to live by. Fred Plotkin, fredplotkin.com. That's F-R-E-D-P-L-O-T-K-I-N.com. And that tip you just gave right now, if you're interested in maximizing your experience in your travels, that could very well be the best budget tip you could possibly come up with. Fred, you are an inspiration. Happy travels and uh, mille grazie. And to you, and we'll have dinner in Italy one day, won't we? We will. Ciao. Ciao. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence, and Tuscany and Rick's Italian Phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.